You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. A lot going on this week. There's a war going on. I'll talk about that and how it intersects with U.S. corruption issues. Plus, we have new incredible documents from Fauci's agency about China and COVID that you're going to want to uh, hear more about. And we sued uh, on behalf of a magistrate who was fired for blowing the whistle about a murder and a rape. Just outrageous, outrageous soft on crime policies that's resulting in those blowing the whistle being punished. Uh, first up is the big war. We had, uh, as, as we all know, uh, the Russians uh, have invaded Ukraine and uh, there's intense fighting going on. Now, if you watched uh, my uh, update last week, I highlighted for you the one of the reasons I think that Putin invaded Ukraine, and there are myriad reasons, right, as to why it happened. But one of the reasons is because Putin looks at the United States and sees a corrupted class of politicians that have been running this country, more or less, uh, for the last decade and a half. Uh, during the Obama administration, he had uh, the Obama gang in his back pocket. He was specifically giving money, he and his allies, to the Clinton machine, who was the uh, putative uh, nominee for a period of time and successor to Obama. Then you had a Russian operative working with Hillary Clinton, according to Durham. Uh, he was working on the Fusion GPS fake dossier to smear Trump. All those lies were made up in part by this Russian operative. And then, of course, you've had the Russians helping Joe Biden with business for his family. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, received, according to a Senate report, three and a half million dollars uh, from the widow of a Russian oligarch. And Burisma, as I've highlighted, is uh, a, a Ukrainian company that was Russia leaning. It was affiliated with Russia interests in Ukraine. So Putin sees all these folks on the take and uh, the other challenges we're facing at home as a result of um, uh, Joe Biden's general weakness caused in part by his uh, medical infirmity that is quite obvious to everyone, his, his uh, cognitive challenges. And he, and he sees a, a weakened West uh, by uh, uh, that is weakened by its own energy policies that are pursuing some a radical ideological agenda while destroying our own energy production that could be internal to us that wouldn't make us reliant as uh, Putin evidently thought uh, he could leverage that reliance in, inv in uh, invading Ukraine. Well, the other corruption issue is that uh, Ukraine was uh, used as a fulcrum uh, by the uh, Obama-Clinton-Biden gang to try to destroy Trump during his presidency. Because you remember, Trump was investigating what was going on in Ukraine. He wanted it investigated because he knew Ukraine was part of this cabal uh, that was trying to drive him from office or involve itself in the elections. Uh, and uh, namely, mostly by helping Joe Biden and smearing President Trump. And for that, they tried to impeach and remove him. Uh, so by turning Ukraine into a plaything for the deep state, the deep state fell into uh, uh, the narrative that Putin had been weaving that Ukraine was a client or vassal of the United States. And in, in large measure, he was proven right 
with the corruption that Ukraine was involved in with the uh, with the support of the anti-Trump State Department and other political people here in Washington, D.C. And so that has led in part to the war. And of course, we know why Putin wants Ukraine for other reasons, uh, his, his hyper-nationalism, his his uh, efforts to reassemble what he perceives to be the Russian Empire. Uh, he's a communist at heart, uh, and uh, you know, and communists are never settled are never settled with just running one country. They they are transnational, uh, so that feeds into uh, what happened. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the invasion of uh, Ukraine, and I don't mean to say, well, Putin invaded Ukraine because Biden's corrupt. No. I'm saying that the corruption I'm talking about is a contributing factor, a significant one in my view, to the war and the decision for by Putin uh, to take uh, this, uh, what I think is largely seen to be an outrageous act in uh, invading another country. Um, and whatever the disputes are, you, uh, <laughs> we should at least uh, try to settle them without uh, going to war uh, against an entire nation, especially when the disputes are so easily settled. Settle, settled at the negotiation table if um, the parties are truly interested in doing so. So that's where we stand. And one of the other big issues out there is they're saying anyone who's been critical of uh, the U.S. craziness uh, in response to the uh, Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, anyone who says, well, you know, let's, let's, let's take a deep breath here and see what's really going on, they say you're a Russian, you're, you love Putin, which is, of course, garbage which is, of course, garbage. And it's usually the crowd that was in bed with Putin saying that those who are critical of the Biden administration's handling of this crisis are somehow traitors. I mean, it's so typical of the left, isn't it? They accuse anyone, they accuse others of doing what they have done. And in this case, they were happily to, happy to ally themselves with Putin. And our Michael Morrison did a piece, he's an investigative journalist, senior investigative journalist at uh, Judicial Watch, and he's been following the Clintons for decades. And he did a piece um, highlighting the Clintons' Russia-Ukraine grift. I have the piece here, and I'm gonna read it in part to you because it nicely highlights Judicial Watch's work because Hillary was out there talking about how, how anti-Putin she is and, and those who helped Russia need to be held accountable. She was getting money directly from them. Judicial Watch broke the story of former President Bill Clinton's multi-million dollar haul from speech fees while his wife presided over U.S. foreign policy as Secretary of State. In a joint investigation with the Washington Times, uh, I think it was the Daily Caller, uh, Judicial Watch found that Mr. Clinton gave 215 speeches, taking in $48 million. According to documents obtained by Judicial Watch in a Freedom of Information Act uh, request and litigation. State Department officials charged with reviewing Clinton's proposed speeches, remember they were supposed to vet them, uh, did not object to a single one of those speeches abroad, even though there were obviously many of them uh, uh, touched on our foreign policy in a way that would cause, uh, well, the problems they're causing now. The speech fees included a jaw-dropping $500,000 check from the Russia investment firm Renaissance Capital for a single speech. Years later, leaked emails revealed that the close connection between Renaissance Capital and Putin's inner circle. Reuters reported that the emails showed that top 
Renaissance officials uh, were awarding an unspecified stake in the firm to Matthias Warnig, a close Putin ally. Warnig served as an, e as an officer in East Germany's Stasi secret police at the same time as Putin was a KGB officer in Dresden in the 1980s. So Renaissance was an arm of the Putin regime, and they gave the Clinton gang $500,000 while Hillary was Secretary of State. All that was exposed by Judicial Watch. Clinton's also cultivated a relationship with Putin-connected oligarch Victor uh, Velks, Velksberg, who donated an estimated 75000 to the Clinton Foundation. In 2018, he was one of seven oligarchs sanctioned by the Trump administration for activities related to the Russian government's malign activity, including continuing to occupy Crimea and instigate violence in eastern Ukraine. So there you have the Ukraine connection in part. And according to findings by our colleague and friend uh, and investigative reporter John Solomon, I don't mean literal colleague, but he's certainly allied in terms of doing great investigative journalism, uh, Velksberg was also involved in the Uranium One controversy, another lucrative source for the Clinton network. Uranium One, you may recall, was a Canadian uranium mining firm with U.S. holdings that the Russians wanted to buy. The vehicle was the purchase. The vehicle for the purchase was Rosatom, the Russian State Atomic Energy Corporation. Because uranium is a strategic asset, asset our folks, our U.S. government, is supposed to approve the deal. And what happened is this oligarch uh, started giving money uh, to the Clinton Foundation. At the time of Bill Clinton's, for instance, $500,000 speaking engagement, the former president sought permission from the State Department to meet with Velksberg and Arkady Dvorkovich, a senior official at Rosatom, during the Moscow trip. Russia needed sign-off from the State Department on the interagency panel responsible for deciding the fate of the deal. So what happens is, in order to approve this deal, this Russia involvement in Uranium One, there's a, there's a kind of a group of senior uh, agency officials, including the Secretary of State, who have to sign off on the deal. Now, you don't need to be a genius to connect the dots between that $500,000 speaking fee, because Renaissance was involved in Uranium One, as best as I recall, a trip to Moscow, and Russia's goal of quartering a big chunk of uh, the global uranium market. Now, the sale of Uranium One was approved by both the U.S. and Canadian governments, again, after all that cash lubricated the decision-making process, in the years surrounding the deal, including before it became public knowledge, entities connected to Uranium one donated $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. The Clintons had a Ukrainian benefactor as well. So everyone had a stake with the Clintons. They were open for business. According to a New York Times report, Ukrainian oligarch and steel baron uh, Viktor Punchik, Pinchik, uh, steered between 10 million and 25 million to the Clinton Foundation, loaned his private plane to the Clintons, flew to LA to attend Mr. Clinton's big 65th birthday party, went to a dinner party at the Clinton's home, and he hired uh, a Clinton consultant to arrange meetings with the State Department to discuss Ukraine. And of course, he also donated $150,000 to the Clinton Foundation. Now, of course, he's been, this guy Pinchuk has been involved in controversies in Ukraine for years, but the whole point is that uh, you've had all of these um, 
all of these foreign interests, including from Ukraine and Russia, entering our U.S. political system through donations and trying to influence our U.S. political system through donations to the Clinton Foundation. Now we've highlighted recently how the Clinton Foundation's monies have gone down. They dropped precipitously over the last uh, few years. I think they're down something like 75%. I don't remember the exact number. Well, I just did an op-ed on it. You would think I'd remember, but it's out there. We can provide a link to the op-ed. Uh, highlighting that it's no surprise that once they were out of power, their fundraising would go down because it was a vehicle to raise money for her political aspirations. It was a front. And sure enough, it's announced, I think literally this afternoon, as I uh, present to you now, that the Clinton Foundation is going to be having their big leadership summits again. Remember those big Clinton Global Initiative type operations where everyone came, gave cash to the Clintons, and you know they'd have these type of summit events? Well, they're back. What does that suggest to you? Clinton Inc. is open for business again. They will be taking money from all comers and that Hillary Clinton, in my view, wants to evidently run for office again because uh, usually the monies that are raised for these foundation and other efforts are uh, to elevate her uh, name as she's preparing for political office. Uh, so the Clinton cash machine, uh, it's never been held fully accountable. It's been held partly accountable because Judicial Watch's exposure of it, because you may recall separately that Judicial Watch exposed the pay-to-play scandal uh, that the Clinton Foundation was involved in when Hillary was at the State Department. You had the Clinton Foundation, despite promises that there would be a bright line between the Clinton Foundation and the State Department, using the State Department to get uh, donors special favors. And Judicial Watch's FOIA request uncovered all of that. And that contributed as much as anything to Hillary Clinton's downfall in 2016. And of course, Judicial Watch separately uh, and relatedly, though, had come up with Hillary Clinton's emails uh, that she had been trying to hide each and every one of them from the American people from years. But Judicial Watch's persistence and consistence and uh, just uh, in uh, relentless heavy lifting uncovered the Clinton email scandal. So this was, you know, that was the most significant non-governmental investigation, frankly, in modern American history. It led to the uncovering of the Clinton email scandal, the pay-to-play scandal. It led, uh, one of the consequences was the unraveling of her presidency presidential campaign, but my discussion here today focuses on how in order to avoid that, the consequences of that criminality that we uncovered, uh, she concocted the Russia smears. So there was never any Trump connection to Russia as alleged by the Clinton machine and Obama and Biden, but there was plenty connection with both Biden and Clinton. And that needs to be front and center. As I said at the beginning of this presentation, that corruption, I'm sure, was part of the calculations that Putin went through in deciding whether or not to invade Ukraine. So uh, just to conclude, national security and corruption are interlinked. When our public officials and our leading government officials are corrupted by foreign money or other reasons, our enemies and friends uh, are keep careful tabs on that and calculate accordingly. And sometimes the calculations 
lead to death and destruction, as we're seeing in Ukraine. So what is Judicial Watch going to be doing? We're obviously investigating everything we can related to Ukraine with Freedom of Information Acts, uh, requests and litigation that still relates to the underlying corruption with the Bidens and the Clintons. We're not going to go away. And uh, I understand there's a war going on and everyone would like to pretend that nothing can be done other than talk about the war. Well, we're not going to stop our oversight work. And we're not, for instance, going to keep on, we're going to keep on highlighting the, um, the corruption issues as it relates to Ukraine and Russia. Because that needs to be part of the accountability for in the debate as to who lost Ukraine. Now, I don't know how the war is going to turn out. It probably is not going to turn out as well for the Russians as they like. But my guess is the Ukrainians ultimately are, are going to be on the wrong end of this war. And uh, the question is going to be is who lost Ukraine? And I would say our corrupt politicians had a big hand in losing Ukraine. Uh, next up, we go from Russia to China. And as I said, the corruption is just endemic in this city. I am not concerned about the COVID pandemic. I am concerned about the pandemic related to government corruption. And it's in all of our federal agencies, including agencies that before COVID, no, well, no one really thought much about, which are our federal public health agencies. Now, you may recall that Judicial Watch has had a series of Freedom of Information Act lawsuits and related disclosures about COVID and specifically uh, the Fauci agency and other agencies roles uh, early on in handling the pandemic, what they knew and when about the uh, China's involvement and uh, for good and bad in the pandemic, uh, gain of function research, uh, issues about the vaccines, we're covering the gamut. Judicial Watch is doing much more in the way of investigations and we've gotten out much more information about uh, gain of function and everything else related to uh, the COVID pandemic at the national level than Congress has done and frankly anyone else has done. I mean, when I look at the scope of materials we've released, it's really quite remarkable. And uh, sure enough, we've gotten new documents from an ongoing lawsuit that we've had uh, since, when did we file this lawsuit? I guess we filed it last year. And we wanted um, all records for uh, communications, contracts, and agreements with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And obviously we wanted information about the NIH grants that benefited the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, if you've been, unless you've been living under a rock for the last two years, and I suspect not, uh, not many of you who follow Judicial Watch are uh, under the rock dwellers, uh, you know the Wuhan Institute of Virology is a Chinese communist controlled lab uh, that may or may not have been involved in gain of function research. Well, actually the documents show it was involved in gain of function research, funded in part with Fauci's agency's money. And the other big question is, did that gain-of-function research or other research, the tools of which uh, U.S. taxpayers help subsidize, result in um, the manufacturer creation of the COVID-19 virus? 
There's a big debate as to whether the virus is naturally occurring and that's how it emerged and infected the human population uh, versus it being manufactured or engineered in a way and then it escaped from a lab, either Wuhan or somewhere else, uh, and uh, resulted in the epidemic. Uh, Judicial Watch has uncovered records from Fauci's agency that show that China was no uh, friend of transparency early on in the pandemic. And this information has been withheld from the American people for over two years. The records show that China withheld key information about COVID and how it was spreading uh, from their alleged colleagues in the international health community, including NIH, And this information could have helped us protect America better and frankly everyone else in the world. The documents uh, show that in 2020, China was withholding the document, uh, the, the COVID information I'm talking about. So this is the early part of January 2020. It was a little bit less than a month after it was officially acknowledged by China that there was something up. And this is a State Department document that was produced to us by Fauci's agency's people uh, that show that they knew, because they are passing along and discussing in the document, uh, that China was uh, not a good friend here. Uh, The document shows that on January 8th, Dr. Ping Cheng, P-I-N-C-H-E-N, now she's a very important person, probably the most important person in uh, in this debate uh, that you haven't heard anyone talk about other than Judicial Watch, because she was Fauci's top person in China during much of the COVID outbreak, certainly when it first emerged. So I didn't know this until I saw these her in Judicial Watch documents that uh, Fauci's agency, the National Institute for Allergic and Effective Infectious Diseases, had a representative, a permanent person, practically speaking, there in China working with Wuhan and kind of gauging, engaging in uh, half-baked spy operations while they were actually funding them. So they were concerned about Wuhan while funding it. It's completely crazy. So after the outbreak, on January, there's a document um, on January 8th, 2020, uh, Dr. Chen emails her senior colleagues at Fauci's agency with the subject line, PRC response to pneumonia cases shows increased transparency over past outbreaks, but gaps in epidemiological data remain. So more transparency, but less transparency. That's a great government document. So this is Chen's email. She writes to her colleagues, hi, this is, uh, here's the cable from the U.S. Embassy Beijing, which means it's a State Department document, reporting on the uh, pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan, China. It has ruled out SARS, MERS, and the flu. Uh, Redacted confirmed, so there's a name redacted. It is a viral infection. Uh, And there's another redaction. The cable contains SBU information, so sensitive but unclassified. So please don't distribute it widely. So this is a cable she shared with her colleagues from the State Department analyzing and describing China's response to the Wuhan pneumonia, as it was called, that was emerging. The summary of the cable states, and it's worth reading in full because it shows you just how unhelpful China was early on. While PRC, People's Republic of China officials, have released timely and open general information about the outbreak, a lack of epidemiologic data, including an epi curve, a summary of dates of onset of illness, characteristics of infected individuals, and other basic 
epidemiologic information hinders better risk assessment and response by public health officials. Again, hinders better risk assessment and response by public health officials. Authorities have not have also not released information on how they are defining a case. Of course, we had that problem here in the United States too, which is ironic because the CDC is terribly corrupt. Given these gaps in detailed information to date and the lack of a final confirmed pathogen, the risk to the United States and global health is difficult to assess at this time. So listen to that paragraph. The Chinese have generally told us about this Wuhan pneumonia, but they're withholding key data that would help us figure out what the risks are to the American people. As of January 7th, the Wuhan Health Commission has reported 59 local cases of pneumonia with unknown cause. Uh, no, Wuhan, a city of approximately 11 million people, is the capital of central China's uh, Yubei province. According to the Health Commission, some patients are vendors who work in the uh, Huanan seafood market, which also sells live exotic animals, including beavers, snakes, porcupines, and deer. Health officials state there has been no confirmed human-to-human -human transmission of the disease and no cases among health workers. Laboratory investigations have ruled out influenza, avian influenza, SARS, MERS, I guess the MERS is short for the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and other common respiratory pathogens and are awaiting final pathogen results. Again, PRC officials on December 31st, 2019, alerted WHO to the pneumonia outbreak. So actually, was this email was only um, a week after uh, became publicly acknowledged, uh, at least by the Chinese. WHO contacts told embassy officials that PRC health departments continue to provide information about the outbreak in accordance with WHO's international health regulations. While China has been forthcoming with standard information, WHO contacts note they have not received more detailed and potentially useful information, again, such as epi curves or other epidemiological data. The flow of official PRC information on this outbreak is limited to that coming from the Wuhan, Institute, Wuhan Health Commission and National Health Commission. So, trouble in China, big trouble. And we're not told about this for two years. Now, you may recall that Judicial Watch uncovered after, shortly after this came out that WHO or one of its subcomponents was trying to put out a press release praising international cooperation on China. And WHO sent an email, or one of the top people there, sent an email to Fauci saying, hey, take a look at this release. We want to send it out. And please note in particular, and I'm paraphrasing since I don't have it in front of me, the special praise we uh, dole out to China here. So China is withholding information, and WHO knows it's withholding information. Fauci's agency knows it's withholding information, and shortly thereafter, they start praising China anyway. You can bet Trump wasn't told this crap. On January 30th, uh, they knew that it was getting worse because uh, Chen, again, Ping Chen, uh, Fauci's person in China, uh, forwards to her colleagues um, a detailed situation report on the Chinese government responses uh, to the virus that was spreading across the country. So this is less than a month later. 
So they had travel restrictions, quarantine measures, and all sorts of other things that were taking place in uh, cities across the country, including Beijing and Shanghai and major cities like that. So this is also interesting. On April 15, 2020, an official whose name is redacted sends an email uh, to colleagues labeled uh, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology Cables. As I'm sure you are quite aware at this point, the cables uh, from a State Department uh, um, agency uh, wrote on the, w, uh, the Wuhan lab and the concerns we had about the findings of the papers on bat coronavirus research has become big news recently. So they all know that there's an issue with Wuhan Institute. Again, these are documents they're only turning over to us now, even though they were created on April 15, 2020. Another major find that we have in these documents is that we were helping Wuhan in all sorts of ways in the years running up to uh, the outbreak of COVID. And we weren't just help, helping Wuhan, we were providing support to other labs and um, well, frankly, similarly dangerous labs all over the world, including in India. An official forwards an email exchange, for instance, in April of 2018, uh, a cable on the Wuhan Institute of Virology visit. China, and this is, this is how the cable begins, the summary. China's Wuhan Institute of Virology, a global leader on virus research, is a key partner for the United States in protecting global health security. Its role as an operator of the just launched P4 lab, uh, which as you know, or you may know, is, means that it's one of the most uh, highly secure labs in terms of its ability to handle the most uh, sensitive pathogens. The first such lab in China opens up even more opportunities for export, expert exchange, especially in light of the lab's shortage of trained staff. We were staffing Wuhan's lab. Let me say that again. We were staffing and training Wuhan's lab. And we saw this as an arm of the U.S. government for all practical purposes when you look at material like this. How else would you interpret it? The cable also mentions that there is a U.S. Centers for Disease Control supported P4 facility in Pune, India, P-U-N-E. I didn't know that, did you know that? What are they doing in Pune? I mean, do you trust Fauci's agencies or any of these deep state public health agencies to monitor what these, what these labs are doing? I don't. And they're going to, they were going to stand up a second lab in Harbin. Now, I've never heard of Harbin, H-A-R-B-I-N. Well, it's another city in China. It's the capital of a major province in northeastern China. And I've seen other documents, and, and they're all on our website. So we don't hide this from you, the American people, unlike the government. Uh, we get these FOIA documents, we put them out there. So sometimes you get people saying, well, Judicial Watch, you know, you can't trust Judicial Watch. How can you not trust us? We put the documents out there. And you can figure out what they say is just as well as we are able to do. And, uh, but the documents that we previously have found shows that we were helping uh, the biological, what I consider to be weapons-oriented research, but they don't want to call it that, but what else would it be there for? They're pretending it's all just civilian research. Do you think the Chinese are doing this for civilian research purposes? I'm sure in part they are, but what else do you think they're doing it for? Defense and offense. But when you look at the funding and look at the scope of our work, 
I don't even know how the Chinese could have opened up these labs without U.S. taxpayer funding. As I said, they look to be arms of the U.S. government, practically speaking, namely Fauci's agency. The cable notes that Chinese officials described the Wuhan lab as a regional node in the global biosafety system and said it would play emergency response role in an epidemic or pandemic. So their, uh, their actual response role turned out to be suppressing information that we needed to figure out what the heck was going on in Wuhan with this COVID lab. And we still don't have the information. I mean, there have been two studies that were put out recently, interesting ones, and I encourage you to look them up because I, you know, I, I um, you know, believe it or not, I don't necessarily uh, think it's a matter of faith that a uh, that we have to believe that this uh, COVID emerged out of a lab versus naturally. Uh, so, you know, it could be either one. I don't know. And if it, it is one versus the other, we make we, we take steps accordingly. Uh, but there are two new studies that have come out that suggest uh, they have some data analysis. Again, that isn't perfect because of China's suppression of information uh, that highlight the, the um, further highlight the possibility that it didn't merge um, in that area around uh, that wet market that has been uh, that's been famously highlighted, uh, but even they note that you know they they still don't have enough information, although they think their their work is persuasive. It continues. Experts from the NIH supported P4 lab at the University of Texas medical branch have trained Wuhan lab technicians in lab management and maintenance. Institute officials said. NIH was a major funding, along with China's National Science Foundation, a SARS research by the Wuhan Institute of Virology's blank. Blacked out. Finally, the cable notes blank with the EcoHealth Alliance, which of course has been linked to this Chinese uh, gain-of-function research that uh, has been largely confirmed by documents uncovered by Judicial Watch, in New York, a New York City-based NGO that is working with the University of California Davis to manage the blank, plans to visit Wuhan to meet with uh, Xi Zhang. Uh, Zhang Li, who was a major official at Wuhan. And well, prior to the outbreak, again, going back another year to 2017, uh, one of uh, Fauci's top people, uh, Gray Hanley, I think he was number two at the agency, forwards to colleagues the State Department cable uh, uh, titled, China's interest in the global virome project presents an opportunity for global health cooperation, uh, which another official notes seems relevant to biobanking, IP, which is typically short for intellectual property, pandemic flu, and a bunch of other issue areas. The summary of the cable begins, the proposed Global Virome Project, an international non-governmental organization built on a decade-long prototype initiated by the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is another agency involved in funding these labs and similar research, seeks to address vulnerability from emerging diseases by creating a global database of viruses of animal origin and identifying those pathogens with greatest potential to jump to humans through sequencing their, through sequencing their genomes, understanding the ecology involved in transmission, and assessing risks to humans. This knowledge could then be used to devise treatments and countermeasures. So I suspect that, um, well, 
I don't suspect because this is what they say. U.S.-China collaboration on this project is an opportunity to lead innovation in science, collaborate with China, and potentially contribute to scientific breakthroughs. So they were using this project, again, funded largely by the U.S. government, uh, to work with the Chinese, our great friends, the Chinese. That turned out to be one of the biggest mistakes, assuming it was done in good faith, uh, in world history. Uh, the records include also an email between the U.S. Embassy in Beijing back again in February 2018, in which NIH officials were monitoring uh, the Chinese media. And uh, some of this we've talked about before. Um, they were looking at high, highly patho pathogenic viruses uh, at uh, the Wuhan Institute, so they knew that was happening. Uh, a new nanotechnology-based flu vaccine. That sounds interesting, and that's been raised before. China advances in human gene therapy, in which China is helping to advance gene and cell therapy and genome editing research by creating novel viral and non-viral vectors for gene delivery and innovative applications as CRISPR technology in a broad range of disease areas. Boy. Imagine if that was applied to the wrong viruses. So there's a lot here, and, and forgive me for going, it through, going through it with you, but you're never going to hear about it unless I tell you about it, because the media covers this up, because Fauci covered it up, and they're protecting Fauci. And what's happening is Fauci's agency gets protected, China gets protected, Fauci himself get protected, but the American people are left in the dark but for judicial watch. So I've been, as I've been saying on social media this week, I'm tired of the cover-ups. Now, of course, I've been seeing cover-ups for my uh, 24 years here at Judicial Watch. Uh, but there, uh, there are cover-ups, and then there are cover-ups that place the American people's health at risk. And when they're lying for China and protecting China, and not pressing China as they should, as we're facing uh, this dangerous pandemic. Now we can argue about how dangerous it is and what we should have done in response to it, and you know where, or you should know where I stand on that. Uh, but you know, we need the more information, the better. And we're fighting tooth and nail from with Fauci to get access to this information. Two years. And one of the reasons we've been take, it's been taking so long to get access to this information is because the government has told us that Fauci and his top people review the documents, which is extraordinary. I'm not aware of that happening before in other FOIA litigation that we've been involved with. We've done more FOIA litigation than anyone on, human or on the earth. And I've never heard of anything like that happen before. So we're going to keep on keeping on here, but you should know that Fauci's agency is involved in a cover-up of what it knew and when about China's refusal to cooperate with us. And they sat on this material for two years. The State Department has also sat on the material, and you wouldn't know it but for your friendly neighborhood, Judicial Watch. One of the other big issues that's uh, really causing a crisis here in the United States is, is, are the crime rates murders and rapes and uh, so-called criminal justice reform that has allowed uh, dangerous criminals out into the streets to uh, rape, maim, and murder. 
Uh, it's a crisis in our urban areas. It's a crisis all over the place. And uh, Judicial Watch has been trying to highlight these issues through its litigation and FOIA work. And in this case, we've uh, filed a civil rights lawsuit on behalf of a magistrate who was fired for taking steps as a citizen to try to protect the uh, citizens that she's uh, had sworn an oath, I presume, to uh, try to protect. Uh, we're representing uh, former Virginia Magistrate Elizabeth Fuller against the officials of the Office of the Executive Secretary of Magistrate Services in Virginia for firing her in violation of her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. So this is a civil rights lawsuit on behalf of essentially a whistleblower. On October 19, 2021, Fuller was fired from her job as a magistrate after commenting to the Alexandria Times as part of a discussion about the publicly available outcome of of her own personal 2020 complaint against a bondsman named Man uh, Nequin. Uh, a man named Ibram Elkai uh, Buachi was arrested and indicted by a grand jury in January of 2020 for. Um, a burglary with intent to with intent to commit murder, abduction, sodomy, strangulation, and rape of a poor woman named Carla Elizabeth Dominguez Gonzalez. And notwithstanding the seriousness of those charges, the Alexandria Circuit Court, Alexandria being a locality here uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia, released this, this predator on a $25,000 bond in April 2020. So he's, he's arrested for rape and attempted murder, abduction, sodomy, strangulation, and he's held for less than, what, four months and released on a $25,000 bond. Compare and contrast that to the treatment of the January 6th defendants. Did I go any further? Less than four months after his release, on January 29th, he reportedly drove to Miss Dominguez's residence, his victim, and shot and killed her outside her apartment complex. I mean, that's, that's the consequence of these soft on crime policies. People get murdered, who otherwise wouldn't have been murdered but for specific policy choices by our courts and the politicians who write the laws. And our lawsuit alleges, and this is, this is the key part, in the immediate days following the news reports about Ms. Dominguez's murder, uh, plaintiff, Ms. Fuller, learned from a police officer in the citizen lobby of the magistrate's office, so in the hallway, that the vehicle and gun reportedly used by Uachi to murder Ms. Dominguez belonged to the surety bail bondsman, Maniguin, who posted the bond for Buachi's re release in April 2020. So the bail bondsman's gun was used and his car was used. On information and belief, the bondsman and the officer struck casual conversation while they were waiting in the lobby when the bondsman said it was his gun and his car that Buachi used to murder the poor woman. We didn't say that in the release, but in, in the lawsuit, that's how I'm characterizing it. And the bondsman said he had actually let Buachi stay at his house while he was away on vacation. So the officer subsequently relayed the information to uh, Ms. Fuller, our client, as part of a casual conversation, uh, you know, basically water, water cooler a conversation. 
among friendly colleagues. Outside, it wasn't as part of any hearing or any proceeding. It was folks in the hall talking. So, because she's a Judicial Watch client, we tend to take on clients who can't help but do the right thing. On August 6, 2020, in her personal capacity, she filed a complaint with the Commonwealth of Virginia, their Department of Criminal Justice Services uh, Division, alleging that the bondsman violated rules and regulations of his licensure as a surety bail bondsman. And on September 20th, uh, September uh, 1st, 2020, he lost his license. It was suspended and revoked. And so Fuller thought, hey, it's over. Uh, more than a year later, this newspaper, the Alexandria Times, local newspaper, disclosed information it obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request regarding the bondsman's involvement as well as Fuller's complaint and subsequently approached Fuller for comment uh, in October 2021. So this is a full year after the complaint had concluded. Fuller commented as follows. Niwin, who is a bondsman, came to work in the days following the murder ne nearly boasting and joking about the fact that the gun and car belonged to him and that Buachi had stayed at his home, the murderer or alleged murderer. Bondsman, I think he's, I think he's been convicted by now. Uh, bondsman, uh, the bondsman was telling this officer about what happened and almost bragging about it. The officer said to me, you'll never believe what he just said to me. So I said, I've got to do something about it. I tell you what, if our public officials, if our court officials, if our politicians, if our media, Frankly, if our citizens all took that line to heart, I've got to do something about it. Think how much better off this country would be. Think how many lives would be saved. Think how secure our borders would be. Think of the better freedoms we'd have. I've got to do something about it. God bless Ms. Fuller. Five days after the story was published, on October 7th, 2021, she was placed on administrative leave. So she did something about it and got punished for talking about it. And she was fired on October 19th, 2021. Really a summary firing, it's really outrageous. It was claimed then at the time that she had violated Canon 3, Section B6 that states, a magistrate shall abstain from public comment about a pending, impending, or concluded proceeding in any court or magistrate's office. In early November 2021, Fuller filed a grievance appealing her termination and asked for reinstatement, which of course was denied. Now we argue that her firing was in retaliation for protected speech, because she embarrassed the court, frankly, and that the judicial canon used to justify her firing doesn't apply to comments made about a public filing made in her personal capacity about a concluded matter. So this is something done in her capacity as a citizen, not as a magistrate judge. So it wasn't about a matter before her. At all relevant times, Fuller was engaged in constitutionally protected speech when she made the comments to the Alexandria Times, which undeniably addressed matters of public concern. Plaintiff enjoys the right of freedom of speech as guaranteed by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. This includes the right to comment to the Alexandria Times on plaintiff's public complaint filed in her personal capacity about the misconduct of, bond, of, the bond, of a bondsman and its outcome and the system's failure to protect a rape victim. Remember, that poor woman is dead. 
and our client tried to do something about it, and the court system punished her by firing her from her job. I'm going to read you what I wrote as a statement because I, I think it's, it's worth considering. An innocent woman is dead because she was murdered by a rapist who was let out of jail. And so the Virginia court fires the magistrate who blew the whistle on the court bondsman whose misconduct enabled the murder. Our client, Ms. Fuller, is a hero, and she lost her job in violation of her constitutional rights because she embarrassed Virginia officials over their deadly soft-on-crime bail policies. So you hear about these soft-on-crime policies, and uh, we're trying to do something about at least one person who tried to take a stand against it. And the only reason she was even out there in the public was because intrepid reporters at the Alexandria Times was, were invest, was investigating this outrage. I mean, this was a big story locally for a period of time. And they found out that this magistrate had filed a complaint. So she responded in her personal capacity. And she gets fired? So she needs to get her job back in the least. And lots of other things as far as I'm concerned. So I'm honored that Judicial Watch and our attorneys, and of course, you know, I get, this is what I love about, sorry, what I love about Judicial Watch. I get to come on here and do something I'm sure you're all jealous of doing. Getting to talk about the work that other great patriots at Judicial Watch do. President of Judicial Watch, but we've got lawyers and investigators and uh, media folks and our administrative and fundraise, all this team here. And they do all this work that results in disclosures about COVID and Fauci and China, about Clinton, Obama, and Biden, and wonderful, wonderful lawsuits for citizen heroes like our client, Magistrate Fuller, or former Magistrate Fuller, who blew the whistle on misconduct by court officials, in the case of the bondsman, who was responsible in part for murder. And we're able to do this work, and I'm able to talk about this great work and be able to direct it as best as I'm able and educate you about it because of supporters. Judicial Watch members, people who write us checks. So I'm unembarrassed and unashamed to ask you for your support. If you like this work, I encourage you to support Judicial Watch. Go to our website, judicialwatch.org. You can, you can give us money on faith. You can go all over and give us money. You know how to give us money these days. Because this is the sort of thing that we do with your support. And I'm proud to be able to do it. And it's a privilege to be able to do it. It's like the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just the president of Judicial Watch. I'm a citizen. And I, as a citizen, am so excited about our work. And I'm sure you are, too. So with that, I wish you the best. I, ensure, I hope you have a great week. And I'll see you here next time on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.